Welcome back to The Foreign Desk with Lisa Bevteri. Excited to get back to foreign policy this week with an extremely important topic that needs our attention and the attention of our lawmakers. And that's the influence of the Iranian regime in Venezuela, or more specifically, the influence of Iran's terror proxy, Hezbollah, deeply embedding itself within the Nicolas Maduro regime in Venezuela. We sometimes hear about Iran's export of terror and its long list of activities in the Middle East. And since they operate under different names for different endeavors, it's hard to connect the dots. We have them supporting the Houthis in Yemen, Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the insurgencies in Iraq, and of course, the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria, in addition to supporting one-off suicide bombers and other activities throughout the world. Add to this the human rights abuses back at home when a young girl is arrested for taking off her hijab or a young man, a talented wrestler, is executed solely for attending a peaceful protest. But again, the world looks the other way and gives the regime a pass. Not only a pass, but invitations to world organizations in order to normalize regime, relations with a regime whose sole mission is to dominate the world with its brand of Islam. Ironic how ISIS, the Islamic State, dominated headlines around the world for the last six years, but consider the original Islamic State, the regime in Iran, that has been at it for over 40 years, building its caliphate from Tehran and throughout the world, torturing its own and exporting its brutality far and wide. And to think half of this country and one of our presidential candidates want to play kumbaya with this evil empire. They mourn the withdrawal of the United States from a flawed and empty Iran nuclear deal that gave the mullahs billions and the audacity to keep building its nuclear arsenal. What did the P5 plus one get in return? What did they get? Egg on its face. But no European country will admit to that. The business is too good and will get even better when the arms embargo expires. How about roughly half this country who still believe we should be signatory to a lame deal with a liar regime? What do they think we're going to get in return to letting the mullahs off the hook? Nothing. But they've deluded themselves into thinking kumbaya is better than confrontation. And apologies and appeasement are synonymous with diplomacy. They're okay with getting nothing and giving everything. That's what we had for eight years of Obama's presidency at least with foreign policy. But while they're patting themselves on the back and rejoicing a fake deal, the mullahs were laughing all the way to our hemisphere. They're building and expanding their presence and building and expanding, building and expanding south of our border, right at our footstep. And maybe we can sleep okay at night thinking Iran is wreaking havoc far away in that part of the world in the Middle East. But how about when they're right at our doorstep? And no coincidence there. To explain all this and more is Joseph Humeyer, expert on transregional threats in Latin America and executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. Welcome, Joseph. Hi, Lisa. Glad to be on. It's an honor to be with the, with the new show, and it's always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, I always like to get your expertise on this, you know, first of all, because you served um, in our military and the Marine Corps and also um, have been throughout the Middle East, uh, in Iraq and in other places. And you truly understand um, both the micro and macro of this all, which I think is lost 
on the American media, on our lawmakers. And um, for me, this is, and I'm sure, and I know, I'm not even sure, I know that for you also, this is on a short list of uh, imperatives when it comes to foreign policy. Um, the reason I'm having you on now, this is nothing new, but um, you just authored a wonderful and very comprehensive report for the Atlantic Council uh, that was released yesterday um, on the Maduro Hezbollah nexus and how Iran backed the net, the, the Iran-backed networks prop up the Venezuelan regime. You know, why don't we hear about this more often? Why is this something that is completely ignored, particularly given the proximity to the United States? That's a great question, uh, Lisa. I think that's a lot to do with uh, both uh, kind of something that's known within the intelligence community as gaps, or what uh, Donald Trump used to call uh, the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns. Uh, you know, the intelligence community is not perfect. There's things that it knows, uh, and there's things that it knows that it doesn't know. Uh, and obviously, there's things that it doesn't even know that it doesn't even know. So that, 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 what that basically says is there's gaps in information. Uh, I think a lot of those gaps happen in Latin America because Latin America has become kind of the lost region of foreign policy. It's often become kind of the last point of a conversation in foreign policy circles or even in the media. It's, it's often covered in, at the end of a newspaper, not at the front page. And so uh, I think we've kind of lost sight of Latin America, partially because uh, people thought that Latin America was really, or generally, a, a zone of peace. You know, they're not wars or violent conflict like there is in the Middle East and Africa. Um, and there's not emerging powers like there is in Asia with China. So people thought Latin America is really just about trade. Obviously, there's drug trafficking, but that's kind of omnipresent. What worse can it get? Uh, and that was, I sold a false bill of goods. Uh, there was a gentleman named Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela for a long time, for uh, upwards of 14 years. And he wasn't uh, an amateur. He wasn't somebody that just was talking big and had uh, a more bark than bite. He was somebody that literally was trying to change the region to be able to kick out the United States from our own neighborhood and bring in Russia, Iran, China, and all these nefarious actors. And he was serious. Uh, he died, obviously, in 2013, so he never got to see the, the fulfillment of his uh, uh, projects. But now Nicolas Maduro's in charge. And Nicolas Maduro is very much... Uh, the kind of the, not just the successor of Hugo Chavez, he's the product of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez helped Maduro become who he is, and then now he's in charge of this regime in Venezuela. And so this, what's happening in Venezuela, I think has now changed that calculus, particularly under the administration, the current administration, where uh, no longer ignoring Latin America, at least not as much as it had in previous administrations. Now, uh, I, I would say that the Trump administration has paid more attention to Latin America than any other administration in previous years. And a part of that has to do with Venezuela. The crisis in Venezuela is is tremendous. It's the largest uh, humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere. It's the second largest refugee outflow, only second to Syria, which you know very well. At least you've covered that case uh, in, the, in that crisis quite a bit. Uh, and it's uh, also a, a complex crisis that involves all these external actors. Like if you were to think about Syria, right, what does Syria represent? Uh, in terms of refugees for the Europeans, but also just what it re represented geopolitically for the world. Well, it, it, it was, you know, the largest humanitarian crisis with ref huge refugee outflows right. that had increasingly the presence of Iran, of Russia, of Turkey, uh, the control of Hezbollah on the ground in, in Syria, all to prop up the uh, Assad regime. That definition, that sentence now fits Venezuela. You just replace Assad with Maduro. And that's not by coincidence. These two uh, uh, conflicts, Syria and Venezuela, have been tied together 
by uh, something that's called trans-regional threat networks that are managed by these global actors, mainly Iran, China, and Russia. So uh, I think part of the reason we ignored it because it, Latin America has just never been a priority for uh, subsequent administrations, but that's changing with uh, the current administration. And I think it'll change uh, moving forward as well. But um, why, what's the attraction one to the other? So what is Venezuela getting out of this deal and what's Iran's regime getting out of this deal? Okay, so there is a transactional aspect of this, which I think, you know, in all uh, relationships, whether those be nation-state relationships or, or network relationships, there's always a transactional, transactional aspect. But I also think that this has to do with strategy. And, and that strategy is very, uh, to simplify it, it's the old adage of the enemy, my enemy is my friend. Uh, I think this also can apply to the old, uh, to, the, to the unconventional alliances that are forming between Iran and China, between China and Russia, between Russia and Turkey, uh, between Turkey and Iran, mm -hmm. where history is not on the, the, the uh, side of those relationships. Those relationships should not exist. They don't have historical connections, but they're connecting because they have that same strategic objective of having the same enemy, that enemy being the United States, and in the case of Iran, also Israel. Um, and so that is what ties them to Maduro as well. Uh, uh, Chavez, Maduro, they looked at the United States as their principal enemy. And I'd say even more so than some of these other uh, regimes because they're in the same uh, vicinity. They're in the same hemisphere. So Chavez understood that the only way he's going to be able to beat the United States, and, and let me be clear about that, his intention was to dominate and beat the United States in Latin America, was to align himself with these big regimes. So there's a strategic aspect. But to your question on the trans transactional part, I think the best way to look at that is kind of uh, the illicit networks. Um, what Venezuela provides for Hezbollah and all these proxy groups that Iran supports is a safe space. Basically, if you're uh, wanted by uh, Interpol or, or, or have an arrest warrant or indicted, you get to Venezuela, you're good. You're not going to be arrested. You're not going to be extradited. You're not going to be uh, uh, pursued. Uh, and so they offer that safe space. And more than just the space, they even give them documents and give just the entire ability to move and cover their movement. Uh, mm -hmm. On the flip side, what does the, the Middle East, Iran, Hezbollah offer? Maduro, well, they offer them illicit support and connections to the Middle East. They offer them the ability for a, a regime that otherwise would be fairly isolated to have uh, the ability to get, I mean, right now, this year, we've seen uh, fuel shipments. So they to get fuel right. when the rest of the world is sanctioned and can't, or you're sanctioned to the rest of the world and you can't get that fuel. So essentially, that's that's the transaction, transactional part of it. But I think there's a strategic side as well. Right. I think the, the physical manifestation of this deal was seen, uh, I think, back in, in May, it was when we saw those, you know, ships arrive. Uh, and I think that's when the media started giving it, I guess it has to have, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, this was a ship that was sailing and people could actually see it. Um, oil, uh, gold for oil, rather. Um, you know, talk about that a little bit. You know, what was that and why, why finally a physical manifestation of what was a more of a clandestine kind of relationship. That's, that, so this was, we, we, we talked about this quite a bit during that happened. And I remember you published a piece uh, on the foreign desk about this. And I think that was a very interesting time because uh, up until that time, uh, as you mentioned, the idea of, uh, of Iran uh, having a robust presence in Venezuela was very much considered uh, an exaggeration or, or even in some corners a conspiracy. Uh, and people said, okay, yeah, we know they're there and they have a relation, they have an embassy. But that relationship is peripheral to all the other relationships the Maduro regime has with Russia, with Cuba, uh, and, and other uh, other actors. And what we saw in 2020, particularly, which 2020 is one of those years where you just see everything, right? Yeah, anything. Yeah. Happens, yeah. <laughs> so what you do see is you see Iran 
very visible in Venezuela. But that, uh, as you know, that isn't a new phenomenon in the sense that Iran just arrived to Venezuela. They've been in Venezuela for a very long time. Right, the right. military of Iran, the IRGC, or, or the, you know, the arm that we know that uh, operates uh, all throughout the Middle East and all throughout the world, has been in Venezuela for at least 14 years, uh, signing contracts back in 2006 with some of the IRGC cutout companies. But they made themselves visible in 2020, and I think it's very strategic what they're doing. They made themselves visible because Iran had a date on the calendar that they were building towards. That date was October 18th. It is October 18th. And what Iran knew, they kind of telegraphed these moves that the United States would make in terms of sanctions. Uh, And so what Iran knew is they had to find a sanctions-resistant strategy, something that could not only uh, allow them to continue to operate in violation of the sanctions, but also allow them to delegitimize the sanctions. And I think that's why they turned to Venezuela. They already had the network there. It was already in place, as I said, for 14 years. But what they decided to do this year was to legitimize their commercial relationship with Venezuela, to Mm -hmm. say they have legitimate interests in a partner nation, to after October 18th, transition that commercial relationship to a military relationship so they can begin to send armaments, saying in in the words of the Ayatollahs that they have complied or they have fulfilled their obligation to the nuclear agreement and that they are now uh, allowed to sell and buy arms to whoever they choose, including uh, the Western Hemisphere's uh, worst uh, uh, regime, which is that of Venezuela. So they, they marked that date on the calendar, October 18, 2020. And all this year, they've been building both that victimization of, of the sanctions in conjunction with Maduro, and also that delegitimization of the sanctions in the international community. Because uh, even though the United Nations uh, has a Security Council resolution that issues sanctions to uh, the to Iran for its violation of the nuclear agreement, uh, they're going to test that. And, and I believe they're going to test that uh, in rather short order. Yeah. Um, at the end of September, we had um, sanctions announced by the State Department once again, um, both on Iran and on Venezuela. Um, and, you know, we know that the pressure campaign is 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 working. Uh, when it comes to Iran, I mean, I speak to people in Iran every single day and the, the, the people understand that this is a pressure campaign coming from the United States, what it is intended to do. Obviously, it does trickle down into the main street economy. But this has been both the most robust round of sanctions placed on the Iranian regime and also the most targeted, meaning it is really pinpointing the parts and sectors of the regime that it is intended to do in order to bring down and to weaken, um, you know, the military, their cyber uh, security um, uh, endeavors, and also obviously their weapons program. Um, Let's take a a listen to um, Mike Pompeo on the announcement of sanctions, not only on Iran, but also on Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela. We're also sanctioning the previous president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. For nearly two years, corrupt officials in Tehran have worked with the illegitimate regime in Venezuela to flout the UN arms embargo. Yeah, so, you know, Mike Pompeo, he speaks um, obviously very, he's he's, he's statesman, right? He speaks very, very eloquently, and he um, is announcing that this should be a threat and a a warning to Venezuela um, to discontinue its nefarious activities. We talked about Iran, the Iranian regime, the sanctions, and how they're affecting them. How, or if if at all, um, are the sanctions affecting Maduro's regime? Could you connect the dots for us on that? Yeah, sure. I think that's a good question because I think sanctions are a valuable and a useful and powerful tool in the U.S. national security arsenal. 
but it, it is not a strategy in and of itself. A sanction isn't, or sanctions aren't uh, meant to be replaced, a strategic vision or strategic plan or strategic uh, uh, perspective on how you want to deal with a particular regime such as uh, that of Maduro in Venezuela or even the Ayatollahs in Iran. Uh, I think the sanctions can have diminishing returns if you don't use them within the correct strategic construct. Let me, let me explain. So I think in, I'll speak on Venezuela. In the case of Venezuela, um, the sanctions evolved. There's also a maximum pressure campaign, maximum pressure strategy on the Maduro regime in Venezuela with the same kind of uh, objective of diminishing his uh, resources and his ability to have political influence or so basically isolating him from the international community. And I think that has relatively been successful uh, to the fact that the uh, more than 50 countries in the world recognize another individual as the president of the country, that being a gentleman named Juan Guaido. Um, we've also sanctioned uh, a, a tremendous amount of individuals and entities in uh, Venezuela, as well as certain industries such as the gold industry, transportation, uh, petroleum. Uh, so really choked off the regime's uh, uh, financial resources. However, there's a difference between what a regime needs to govern, right, to basically run institutions as a state versus what a regime needs to destroy. Uh, and, and so what we thought initially, I think, is that, well, he's going to need this much money to have the oil running, to have the electricity running, to basically turn the lights on in the country. And what now we realize is he doesn't care about the lights in the country. He, he could go dark for however mm -hmm. long because their objective isn't to govern. I think that applies probably to Iran as well. Iran as well. I was just going to say, that is what they both have in common. It's the, the the longevity of the regime itself and not for the people. Not for the people. And so the amount of money that you need to do something that's much more specific than trying to actually do a legitimate function of a state, which is govern for its people, is much different. And that money it perhaps doesn't even come from legitimate resources such as exports and, and, and commercial trade. It may come from illicit resources. In the case of Venezuela, narco trafficking, uh, illicit uh, gold mining, and other things like that. And you can't sanction something that's already illegal. Like You, know, you can't you know, tell a drug trafficker, we're going to sanction you because he's already engaged in an illicit activity. So that's kind of one of the lessons we've learned with the limitations of sanctions, that they don't necessarily topple these regimes because these regimes are already dealing with a completely di different enterprise, the illicit enterprise. And, and in that world, you know, the sanctions aren't, that doesn't matter. Uh, and so I think in that sense, we have to start to think about the illicit networks that prop up both Maduro in Venezuela and uh, the Ayatollahs in Iran. And then kind of understand that, you know, I think a lesson that you, something that you know, Lisa, I know a lot of people know this, but I feel like policymakers still struggle to understand this. And I think the United States struggles to understand this, is these aren't Westphalian democratic nations. They don't actually think and view right. the world the way we right. do. They you look at, for example, terrorism and organized crime with a very different construct. Like us here in the United States and other Westphalian nations, democratic nations, we use our state institutions to protect against terrorism and organized crime. Like immigration is meant to deter those individuals from coming into the mm -hmm. country. They use their immigration systems to move those individuals. Right. It's a complete paradigm shift on how you look at their criminalized states and they need to be uh, dealt with as such. And I think that that's something that we're still, the United States is adapting and learning uh, uh, on the fly. I think the last administration, unfortunately, uh, I don't even know if they didn't understand that or they just had a bigger objective with getting to the nuclear deal. Uh, and this administration, I think it has a better understanding of that. They, they understand that these regimes are, are dangerous and they're, and they're a problem, they're a threat. Uh, however, dealing with them is much more complex than, than what we uh, would initially think. Yeah, and I think um, what people 
probably wouldn't understand or would be surprised to know is how seamlessly these um, elements have embedded themselves within society. It's not that they're just there. It's not that they're just like immigrants hanging in, around the way we saw a lot of immigrants on the streets of Europe. These individuals have been elected into office. They are running um, dual purpose businesses. I mean, talk about that a, a little bit. I think it's, it's, I mean, what are they doing there? Um, what kinds of businesses have they involved themselves in and how have they really become one with the people in Venezuela? Yeah, so let me uh, use that as an opportunity to kind of uh, play, delve into the report a bit. So the, the one of the ideas of the report, one of the reasons I wrote the report, one of the reasons I worked with the Atlanta Council to publish it is because I realized that uh, there really isn't a lot of literature, especially at, at a very academic level, on the uh, relationship between Iran and Hezbollah and Venezuela. Uh, particularly Hezbollah in Venezuela. You hear it, I think the administration, you've heard uh, Secretary Pompeo, uh, I think Secretary Mnuchin, uh, other folks in the U.S. government have said Hezbollah is present in Venezuela, but then they, would, they wouldn't get into the details. And mm -hmm. the journalists and everybody else is like wondering, well, okay, they say that, but you know, what's there? Well, how do we explain that? And, and so what the purpose of the report is to do is to get into the nuance, get into the details of how that actually works. And I think there's two things that we have to... Uh, uh, the understand be able to get into those details. The first is how Hezbollah operates. So Hezbollah is like any other mafia, or, or you know, if you want to use it as an analogous to like the uh, Italian mafia, the Irish mob in the early uh, 20th century, uh, they realize that diasporas matter. Uh, knowing that there's more Lebanese outside of Lebanon than in Lebanon, uh, that 40% of Lebanon's GDP come from remittances, mm -hmm. uh, Hezbollah from day one knew that they had to have a presence abroad. Uh, mm -hmm. So what Hezbollah did is they've been able to use all the tradecraft of like what an intelligence service would do to be able to infiltrate these communities worldwide. Uh, in Latin America, there are significant Lebanese communities in countries like Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, uh, but also Colombia and Venezuela. And so uh, Hezbollah, since Hezbollah has been born in the 1980s, they have been uh, building support networks in these communities to be able to take uh, individuals, entities in those communities to support its terror and criminal operations worldwide. So Venezuela is uh, definitely involved in that. And what the report does, it's, it's specified to get into the details, the specific individuals uh, and what we call clans, the families in uh, the Lebanese community in Venezuela that are involved with this support activity to Hezbollah in Lebanon, but also to the Maduro regime in Venezuela. They're like the glue that binds the two together. Uh, and let, let me be actually also clear on another point that this doesn't mean that all the Lebanese communities are, are infiltrated. This just means that they're a target, and I'd say a victim, of Hezbollah, just like the Lebanese people in, right. in Lebanon. So that, you know, if you're Lebanese and you're living in uh, Los Angeles, that, that, that doesn't mean that you're gonna be uh, impervious from Hezbollah because they have a global reach. Uh, and so I think it's very important. One of the recommendations I put in the report is very important to work with the Lebanese community in Latin America. Actually, I'm going to stop you there for a moment because, you know, I had this question for later, but I think it's it's a perfect time to ask you, you know, with the recent in Lebanon itself, because you talked about how um, Venezuela gives Hezbollah a, a safe haven. Um, would there be a chance that because the Lebanese people, after the explosions that recently happened at the ports, that they're waking up to the fact that they want, you know, to be rid of Hezbollah uh, within their society and within their land? Um, would would it be the case that Venezuela would suddenly shift to the main headquarters of uh, Hezbollah over Lebanon because of of what's recently happened? That's an interesting question. I, I do want to touch on what you said in the sense that. Lebanese people are waking up that, that Hezbollah is a problem, and it's not just a problem because 
uh, of the you know what they've done abroad, but it's a problem because they're pretty much co-opting the current government, and 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 corruption is just going rampant throughout the country to the point that you know whatever recovery they're going to need for what's happened in in Beirut, it's going to take uh, much longer than it should take under normal circumstances. Uh, and so, anyways, I think that's a that's a good point, and it's also I think there's a good opportunity not just with Lebanon, but the Arab world in general. I mm-hmm. think with you know the historic peace agreements with uh, Bahrain and with the, the Emirates, I think have all waken up to understand that the biggest problem in the Middle East isn't Israel, it's Iran. Iran is the one that's literally intervening in the internal affairs right. of all these Arab countries, and the, and the resulting consequences are uh, humanitarian crisis, uh, increased uh, sectarian conflicts, uh, just more problems. And so in that in that same kind of uh, line of thinking, I think bringing that conversation to Latin America as well. And making sure that the the Arab communities in Latin America know that they're not just trying to do that in you know their home, they're trying to do that in where you live as well, because they view themselves as a global power, as a global movement. Iran doesn't limit itself to the Middle East; they view themselves exactly. as a uh, a global uh, uh, movement that's looking to uh, basically diminish the influence of the United States worldwide. Right. Um, and, and let's go back to the, the dual use businesses. Let's go. Let's let's get to the nitty gritty. Uh, I think we were aerial. Now let's get on to the ground. What's going on on the ground in Venezuela? How have these people embedded themselves? Uh, what kinds of businesses they run day to day? Yeah. So in the report, I'm going I'm to mention two of the specific clans that we talk about in the report. And I think they're good examples of this connection, these support networks that are built. One of them is called the Nazaruddin clan. And this is a clan that members of the clan, leading members such as a gentleman named Ghazi Nazardin, isn't just a supporter to the Maduro regime. He was part of the Maduro regime. He was a foreign. He was part of the foreign ministry. He was a senior Venezuelan diplomat that was sent to the Middle East. He was sent specifically to Syria, uh, being he's of Lebanese origin. He's Lebanese Venezuelan, and he ran uh, the Venezuelan um, embassy basically in in Damascus. Uh, there's an indictment in um, in the Department of Justice that was unsealed in May of this year, where they talk about a potential weapon, not even potential, but a, a, an alleged weapons for cocaine scheme, mm-hmm. where cocaine was being sent from the FARC in Colombia, which is a guerrilla group in uh, Colombia, to Hezbollah in the Middle East, and in exchange for uh, weapons such as uh, AK-47s and uh, rocket-propelled grenades and, and, and other type of military armament, that was being sent to the FARC from Hezbollah. The broker of that deal was this individual and the Maduro regime. So the Maduro regime acted like a facilitator. Uh, exactly. And, and tell us, I mean, we, we need to serve this up. Why is that of concern to people who are voting, to people who are living in the United States? Why is this of concern? So I'll tell you what the indictment says. Now, again, this is an indictment that's alleging uh, a crime. Uh, and obviously the person that's being accused, which is actually a former Venezuelan congressman, former Venezuelan legislator, Who's Syrian? Uh, check this out. He's Syrian Venezuelan, and he took a leave of absence from the Venezuelan National Assembly to go fight in Syria in defense of Bashar al-Assad. So, like, completely abandoning his home country to go fight for a foreign country just to show you where his allegiances lie. So, well, why does this matter? Well, I'll tell you what the indictment says. The indictment says that the idea of this weapons for cocaine scheme wasn't just about one transaction to help the FARC. It was actually about creating a super cartel in Latin America that would flood the United States with drugs and weapons. That's what these indictments are about. That's what the, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Department of Justice has been working on for a very long time. And what we've seen in the United States, we've seen the, the, the basically the explosion of all kinds of narcotics 
and on the streets that not just the uh, opioids that are killing, but also cocaine is still a big problem uh, in the United States. Sure. And, and yeah. we're seeing that that's not just a cartel activity from the traditional cartels of Mexico, but that's also something that has blessed in the business uh, and, in, as well. Yeah. And what's been done about that here in the United States? So I, I, there is, I have to give some credit to the U.S. government on this because uh, two things. One, the Department of Justice has done good work on shutting down some of these networks. Uh, they uh, stood up something called the Hezbollah Financing and Narcoterrorism Team, and which has led to uh, several indictments, but also uh, arresting some convictions. The Ali Karani case, for example, in New York, this is a, a Lebanese-American that was actually planning and doing pre-operational surveillance in the United States, in New York, uh, against uh, all kinds of different targets for Hezbollah. So he, he was arrested he, and recently convicted and sentenced to prison. But there's other cases that they've been working on to map this network. As this uh, work, uh, law enforcement work has been, do been taking place, we've learned a lot more about Hezbollah in the last three or four years than I'd say we have in the last 10. Uh, and, and we learned a little bit about their trade craft, but we learned a lot about the strategic intentions and how they're working to basically create networks worldwide. So I think that's one thing. The second thing I think that's been done, and this is something that I've been very intimately involved in, is the uh, basically the designation of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. Right. Sounds like a simple thing here in the United States because we designated Hezbollah back in 98, so it's been a long time. However, in a lot of parts of the world, they still don't have that same perspective on Hezbollah. Uh, if you go to, for example, to Peru and you ask, uh, what is Hezbollah? They'll say, oh, isn't that a political party in Lebanon? Or don't they do like social services and build schools? Yeah, social services, right. <laughs> they, you know, yes, they, they do some of that for sure. But they also blend that activity with uh, right. ter terrorism attacks in Bulgaria and Israel and Saudi Arabia and Argentina. Uh, and they also uh, ma manage massive money laundering uh, networks. And so to be able to define Hezbollah in the same way across multiple countries is important for counterterrorism cooperation. It's very difficult when one country views Hezbollah as a terrorist organization and another country views them as a, just a political party in Lebanon. It's hard to have a counterterrorism conversation between the two. So uh, the, the Trump administration has been working very closely with our allies in Latin America to designate them as a terrorist organization in the region. This happened for the first time in history where you took part in, in, in our events. Uh, last year in July 2019 by Argentina, the former government, the president Mauricio Macri. And since then, uh, since July of last year, um, uh, Paraguay, Colombia, Honduras have also designated Hezbollah. These are the first four designations in the history of the region. And had it not been for COVID-19, I think we would have more designations this year as well. But obviously that's, that's stalled things. But that's very important. It's more than just a legal maneuver. It's also a matter of changing perceptions. And for a long time, Latin America right. didn't know what Hezbollah was. Uh, that's changing. Yeah, I know. You know, you called it, and I like this in your report, the uh, knowledge deficit um, surrounding this topic and, and many other foreign policy topics. But this being, as I said, the, the proximity of this, the urgency of this, because they are, you know, building and their presence uh, as we speak. Um, you know, how how has this and I know you go around even before COVID more so than than, than now, obviously, um, traveling the world to speak about this topic. Um, and, you know, how would you say that this deficit is closing in, uh, first of all, and secondly, um, what's being done about it? Is it, it, it does the, is the punishment fitting the crime? Are we, are we reacting enough? Is there enough knowledge about this, et cetera? So, so Venezuela is a, a wake up call, I think, to everybody about this, uh, not just in terms of Iran and Hezbollah, but just about the great power competition that the world is undergoing right now between major massive global powers that are trying to challenge the United States. I'm talking about Russia. I'm talking about China. I'm talking about e e uh, Turkey, Erdogan, and obviously Iran. 
And um, Venezuela is probably the first major challenge to the United States uh, mm -hmm. in the of great power competition on our side of the world in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, most of these competitions are happening in the Middle East, in Syria, in Yemen, Iraq, uh, are happening in Asia with the South China Sea, happening in Europe with Ukraine, Crimea, Belarus now. But uh, it's happening also here in, in our own neighborhood. And Venezuela is that. But I think we've learned a lot of lessons. Venezuela has been a learning curve for the United States. We haven't paid attention to Venezuela uh, at a high level for, for many, many years. I, I, not just the Obama administration. I would say even the Bush administration. Uh, didn't pay much attention to, to Latin America either. And obviously 9-11 changed some of the trajectory of what they would look at as their foreign policy. But uh, Venezuela has taught us a lot of things. One of the things it's taught us is the what I call the anti-fragility of the regime, like, meaning the more you try to pressure it, the more it has its ability to expand. Uh, uh, I think Syria is really the other uh, case that really matches Venezuela. And if you think about that, like what did we learn in Syria? We learned after nine years of civil war, uh, multi-dimensional conflict, all this, everything that's happened in Syria over this last uh, decade, almost a decade, is that the weaker Bashar al-Assad gets doesn't necessarily mean that Bashar al-Assad is going to leave from power. That the weaker Bashar al-Assad gets, that just invites more external actors. In comes uh, Russia, in comes Iran, Hezbollah, right. Turkey, and complicates that crisis. That same lesson is applied to Venezuela. A weak Maduro does not necessarily mean that a Maduro that's going to leave. That just means that it's going to become um, uh, Venezuela is going to become a territory for these global actors. And I think that's something that we're wrestling with right now. We're trying to understand how to deal with that. But uh, what I do, and not, not so much in this paper, but in our research in general, is we had to take a historical look at this. We had to really understand what is the objective? What is the strategic angle for these regimes? I mean, at some point, they have to have an end goal. And what we realize is, and this is going to sound a bit uh, kind of uh, ambitious on their end, but they want to literally redraw the geopolitical map. Uh, they want to raise borders. They want to change the way commerce works throughout the world. Uh, and in the case of Venezuela, Chavez said this. He said, we're going to create a new territory called Greater Colombia. Basically, we're going to take Colombia. We're going to take mm -hmm. Ecuador. We're going to take Panama. And, and, it, and it's in the lines of the thinking of one of their founders, Simon Bolivar. But guess what? That isn't an original concept. That was the same concept of the Ottomans under Greater Syria. The same idea of pan-Arab unification that Nasser lifted up during the 20th century that was the heart of a lot of Middle East conflicts. Right. Chavez adopted that. And not only he adopted that, he learned from the Arab world about how to do revolutions. The Iranians then picked up from that. So there, there's a lot of history what, on what ties in the use of asymmetric war to be able to conquer territory. Today's day and age, in the 21st century, in 2020, uh, we don't, uh, our enemies don't conquer territory with armies. They conquer them with networks. And I think mm -hmm. that's what we're learning here. Uh, so it, it is a serious problem. It's a serious challenge, and it is warfare. It's just not conventional warfare as we're used to from uh, World War One and beyond. Right. And I mean, looking forward, um, what what are some of the things that can be done? I mean, let's talk about the um, U.S. Um, strategy, I should say, to prop up Guaido, the opposition leader, um, a failed attempt. Um, you know, why didn't that work? Could that work in the future? Um, is Guaido going to stay in the picture? I mean, what what's what's our best bet on this? So I think I think uh, so in the military, they have something that's called center of gravity analysis. And uh, Admiral Fowler from Southcom has spoken a lot about this recently. Uh, center of gravity analysis is to understand what's the true nature of a regime and what's their force, what is their power coming from? And I think initially when we got involved in the Venezuela crisis or when we started to look at that when, um, you know, 2017, when the crisis really erupted, uh, many people thought that it was Cuba. You know, it was Cuba, it was drug trafficking, 
It was the illicit networks. Uh, that was the center of gravity. So we attacked that. We attacked Cuba. We basically sanctioned all of it. Uh, we cut off that trade. Uh, we also went after the drug networks. We went after the individuals, the entities. Uh, we've sanctioned some. We've arrested others. And then we realized that it wasn't really all about that, that this is really a more about Iran. This is really more about Russia or about China than it is about the local actors. And I think that's a big lesson. Uh, it's less important what goes on inside Venezuela. And it's more important how the Maduro regime connects outside of Venezuela with all these external actors. So I think that's a perspective that we have to shift. I think we are already making that transition. And in that in that kind of line of thinking, uh, President Guaido is is important, but he's not as necessary. You don't like if you think everything has to do with the internal situation, then you think of a, a strategy with uh, legitimizing uh, the only constitutional uh, element left in the country, which is the National Assembly, would be the route to go. But if you realize that you know what, maybe that's just a, a political show, maybe that's just a, something that's put up there, but doesn't really control any power, then maybe we have to focus on the external actors. And I think that shift is happening. Uh, President Guaido has done very brave, uh, courageous work. I mean, he's literally facing up a dictator, not more than a dictator, facing up uh, almost like a warlord in, in, in Nicolas Maduro. But uh, he is uh, essentially working, uh, flying without a net. Uh, he, he has the legitimacy. Like I said, most of the democratic world uh, recognizes him as president, but he doesn't have any power in Venezuela. He doesn't control the military, he doesn't control, uh, basically doesn't have the weapons. So he has no ability to enact change in the country. I don't think that's gonna change anytime soon. You know, it's um, an interesting question that I like to um, end off with, with all my foreign policy experts is, um, you know, taking a look now inside the United States. You know, we we cover national security, we cover terrorism, we cover all these t hot zones around the world. And now it looks like in 2020, the world is looking at the United States as a place that is a hot zone and a place where there are many, many national sec security uh, emergencies, not just one. Um, what are your you know, sources, what do they say? Or how are they looking at the United States and everything that's going on here from the protests to the looting to the election uh, and, and everything else? Everyone's concerned. Uh, and I, I direct a national security think tank here in Washington called Center for Security for Society. And one of the things that distinguishes from other think tanks is that we work very much uh, with partners abroad. Uh, so I have something called international fellows, which are individuals that work in different countries, mostly in Latin America, that work almost like senior fellows work here in Washington, where we do our research and analysis together. And they're individuals I've known for a long time. And so like talking with them, you know, and we have over a dozen international fellows and talking with them, they're all worried more than even their own elections. They're worried about the U.S. election because I think they all understand something that the United States really is the beacon of freedom in the world. And if the United States falls, where else are we going to go? Uh, you know, a lot of these folks, when uh, their countries start to fail, they always say, well, at least we can go to the United States and start again. And, and, and you know, my, right. I, my parents are migrants. So, you know, my parents are from Bolivia. So, you know, they if Bolivia ever uh, functioned as a country, uh, probably I would not be here today. But it, it didn't. And so my parents came here to find a better life, like the story of many of us. Uh, throughout the country. Yeah. Uh, and so I think they're worried about losing that. They're worried about losing it. It's almost like the United States provides a safety net to the world to know that as bad as it gets in your country, you can always come here and we'll find a way to make it uh, work. However, that's, that's uh, I think, changing. And they're worried that it's changing that not from uh, their own country, but it's changing from within the United States. So they, they're, they're, I'm, I'm always amazed at how much they know about the protests and Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all these things that you think that are only like Americans talking about it but all these international countries are looking at it and they're worried about it. Uh, the United States is really the uh, only uh, power left to, that can stand up to, to Russia, Iran, and China. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, no, no other country, nation, alliance can 
do what the United States can do. The only difference is the United States has to figure out the right strategy. Uh, we're, it's, not a, it's not a conflict that we want. I don't think it's a conflict that we're looking for. I think if it was up to us, we would just let bygones be bygones and let everybody do what they need to do in their own countries, in their own uh, regions. But this is a fight that's coming to us. Uh, they, 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 these countries have realized that uh, the only way that they're going to survive, the regimes are going to survive, is if they can topple the United States. And I, I, I call this the wounded dog syndrome. So I, I believe China, Russia, and Iran are weak too. I believe they have a lot of weaknesses. I believe their economies are weak. I believe their people are standing up. But a wounded dog doesn't necessarily mean it's a dog that's going to lie down. Oftentimes, a wounded dog will bite back even more aggressively. And I think that that's going to happen if it's not already happening uh, in, in very short order. But really, the United States is the only one that can stop it. And, and so I think a lot of us are worried about that. Uh, one of the reasons I do the work I do is because I want to ensure that uh, our national security uh, community, our national security policymakers have the right information analysis to deal with this. Because all the, all, the, all those threats that we that you deal with, Lisa, globally, uh, Venezuela is going to be, I think, the one that's going to challenge us the most. And, right. and, and for Iran, Venezuela is their best weapon. Uh, right. more, than, more than Syria, more than Yemen, their best weapon to attack the United States is Venezuela. And uh, I believe they'll use it. Right. Absolutely. I think it was perfectly said. The, the importance of the U.S. as a world power, the importance of leadership, ex exceptionalism, the importance of having a uh, bipartisan approach forward uh, makes us all better, makes us all stronger. And I know you're the child of uh, immigrants, as I, am I, and uh, we love this country and we want to see it thrive um, and do well on the global stage because it'll mean a more secure and free society for all uh, globally. And I thank you for your work. I thank you for this report. Um, congratulations on it. I know that it's re received acclaim far and wide um, as it should. And it brings a lot of attention to an extremely important foreign policy issue. And I hope that um, people understand and, and they we close in the knowledge deficit that you speak of. Thank you so much, Joseph. And thank you all for tuning in once again. I encourage you to go to YouTube slash Lisa Daftari to subscribe to my weekly podcast as well as sign up for my daily top 10 email at foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter. Thank you so much. See you again next week.